Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Phoenix had a security release, and the versions are for 1.3, 1.4, 1.5, and 1.6. So it's really nice that this was backported. But what this does is it resolves a vulnerability in a wildcard check origin configuration. So first of all, you need to know this is not something that you would have by default if you just created a Phoenix app. This is only if you explicitly went in and set up wildcard check origins. Only those using a wildcard check origin are affected and potential exploits are limited, allowing unauthenticated channel connections from a bad host. Still, this is an easy update to do. And since it was backported all the way back to Phoenix 1.3, that makes it even easier. So keep your Phoenix up to date. All right, Elixir 1.14.1 was released. This just includes some minor enhancements bug fixes. Looks like they're just covering some uncommon edge cases, such as like macros. If you're doing like macro expansion, a lot of compile time, like dependency kind of things with literals, like those are the things that are in this update. But just like Phoenix security updates, always good to get your Elixir updates too. This is a good little one. Speaking of updates, LiveView also got a patch 0.18.3. It's a pretty small change log. There's one single fix to slots when passing multiple slot entries in. Yeah, I've been using the new Phoenix.18 for a while now, and it's working great for me. It's nice to stay on top of these updates as they come out, though. Speaking of LiveView, Sophie also wrote an article that covers what the new special forms are. We talked a little bit about these last time when we were talking about the release of 0.18. These are the if, the let, and the for, and they're kind of like attributes inside of your HTML tag. So We'll drop a link to that blog post. It definitely, you've probably seen these in other JavaScript frameworks like Vue. They're pretty popular. So it's it's cool to see these coming to live view. Yeah, what was really nice is that these came out in 1.18 and they were mentioned in the changelog, but they weren't really documented with examples showing you, no, this is really cool. You should be using this. And Sophie DiBenedetto did a great job of highlighting those. And next up. A new library called Absinthe Client was released. It's a GraphQL client designed for Elixir Absinthe with built-in support for subscriptions. So it was announced by Michael Crum, who works at CargoSense, and the library is actually housed under the CargoSense GitHub organization. So what this means is, say you have an Elixir application and you want to make it a client of another service that has a GraphQL API, perhaps written in Absinthe, this makes it really easy to make that connection. And I've done those before where you can just connect up to a GraphQL server like that. But what was difficult to manage was getting the WebSocket subscriptions. And this really helps with that. So I just love seeing companies like CargoSense in this case, contributing to projects and open sourcing work like this. Yeah, I noticed in one of those Twitter threads that Slipstream was used to power the GraphQL subscriptions. And if you remember back in episode 99, we talked to Michael Davis, who is the primary author behind Slipstream. It's a pretty cool WebSocket library. I've been using it at work and it's solid. It's good stuff. It's got good documentation and it works well. So check out that episode if you're interested. Hey, Ecto SQL version 3.9.0 was released. Uh, tweeted about this, but this this is a good release. This has a couple of things that might be interesting for you. First, a little quality of life improvement. If you use UUIDs, you might have noticed that sometimes they're they're printed out in logs as like binary. 
So now that may not happen anymore. There's, they're going to be logged as human readable UUIDs. That's pretty cool. This also includes a nulls distinct option for unique indexes. This is applicable for Postgres 15, which is about to come out, I think. And uh, the idea here is that if you add a unique index to a column, null is going to be treated as a regular old value, right? And you may not want that. You may want nulls to just be treated as no no value. Don't don't consider this really as a, as a value when you're trying to obtain uniqueness for rows. So that's really nice. But then also it includes a, a change that I got in there, which was about adding a repo configuration for Postgres for running migrations with an advisory lock instead of a database transaction. This is important for unique indexes or any indexes rather, because if you add indexes to the database, you probably want to do it concurrently. But if you do it concurrently, you can't, you can't use database transactions. So how do you, how do you ensure that repos, you know, don't try to all run the same migration at the same time. And that's where this advisory lock can come in. So go check out the change log. We've got a link to it. I also updated the safe ecto migrations guide to include this change. So if you're using Postgres, like real Postgres, not a Postgres compatible one, if you're using Postgres and you upgrade to ecto, you probably want that repo config added. So go check out the change log. Next up, Livebook 0.7 was released. You know, I remember a time when we were talking about Livebook every single week. It seems like it's been a little while. So here we are with another big update. This includes some features that Jose showed off in his ElixirConf keynote, like the DBG support, but also a big one that I know we've all been looking for, storing secrets or secret support, right? So you can now store secrets in Livebook. They give you APIs to get those out and use them. That's really helpful. I mean, I've just been pasting plain text secrets into my live books. They're just local anyways, but this is this is a big improvement. So yeah, that'll, that'll be much more important for live book enterprise, I think, or any other shared instance, like for your coworkers, your team, maybe. Yeah, this is super helpful if your live book is calling out to an external API or something like a service and you need API tokens and you want to have a way of storing that. And what was interesting is Jose shared something where he says, this will also play well with the upcoming Livebook Enterprise, where you'll be able to share secrets within your team and your company. This allows notebooks to be safely versioned and distributed, even if they contain credentials or other restricted information. So really, we haven't heard much more about Livebook Enterprise other than Jose saying at and announcing in his keynote that this is something that's coming. We're still looking forward to hearing more details on that. And next up, a new official Elixir blog was released titled My Future with Elixir Set Theoretic Types. So this is authored by Jose Valim. It's a first of a three-part series where he talks about set theoretic types and Dashbit's ongoing research on types for Elixir. Much of the information here was covered in his ElixirConf keynote, but it's still really helpful reading, especially for referring to code snippets. And what's really nice about this is it's a Nice format for sharing with someone else. You know, you're not handing them off to like an hour long video. Here's some like text where they can skim and find the bits that are relevant for them. So it's a great format for that. It'll just be nice to share more information about what's going on with the set theoretic types. If you're itching to go to a conference, your next conference for Elixir and Erlang is probably going to be Codebeam America. It's being held on November 3rd and the 4th in the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California and online. So that's codebeamamerica.com. It is Elixir and Erlang focused. That's 
always great. The speaker lineup also looks really great. This is a smaller conference with two tracks and over 30 speakers, though. Maybe it is a little bit smaller, but it's still good folks there. And two tracks in case you, you know, so you do have choice. (laughs) The sale on the virtual tickets ends on uh, October 25th. So by the time you're hearing this, maybe if you listen when we release, you got about a week left or so. So if you're hearing this, go check, go check real quick so you can get that sale. If not, maybe you missed it, but hey, that's okay. Code Beam America is still going to be a really good conference to go to. And if you can't go there physically, there's still the online tickets. Last up, some general news that doesn't really have anything to do with Elixir, but it's still cool. Cloudflare has created a new capture replacement they're calling Turnstyle. From their website, they say Cloudflare Turnstyle delivers frustration-free, captcha-free web experiences to website visitors with just a simple snippet of free code. Free code. I like that it's free. You don't have to pay for it. They go on to say, what's more is Turnstyle stops abuse and confirms visitors are real without the data privacy concerns or awful UX that captures thrust on users. Yeah, I thought this was interesting because in general, in the tech world, there seems to be a move to de-Googleify things and just kind of maybe be less invested in Google tech. And this is a great alternative for CAPTCHAs because a lot of times the quality CAPTCHAs were provided by Google, but that was forcing your users to do machine learning image classifications for Google. I wonder how much that's relevant anymore because I'm pretty sure over the the 100 years of people time, selecting crosswalks and boats they've ought to have figured it out by now in their in their machine learning algorithms this is a boat you know the next class of thing will be you know all the pictures with a person on a balcony with a cat in the i don't know (laughs) the point i wanted to make sure we got with turnstile is that this is really free and it is something that cloudflare has done a really good job on i've heard really great things about it like from a security perspective like analysis of that It's a great resource to know about for hosting your apps when you want to isolate and protect some like login or any kind of prevent abuse on services. And that's it for the news. This episode is brought to you by Fly.io. You know, LiveView has been a game changer for how we build interactive web applications. When you deploy your application physically closer to your users, the experience is even better. That's what Fly.io lets you do. Easily deploy your apps around the world like people do with CDNs. What's more, Elixir and Fly.io feel like they were made for each other. It's so easy to set up clustered applications across data centers. Fly.io has over 20 regions around the world ready for your app. The secure WireGuard network means you can securely do cross-region PubSub with Phoenix. So many things become possible now that were just so hard before. Check out Fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Kimberly Johnson. Kimberly, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. Well, you spoke at ElixirConf, the recent one, 2022, and your talk was titled Self-Taught to First Job. And I was like, I recognize her. I recognize you. And it's because you had joined one of our virtual Elixir meetups that we were holding. You're also in Utah, I should mention. I That's the same state where I live. So I saw you present and I really wanted to talk to you about the non-traditional path that you took to programming and Elixir because, of course, we want more people to come to Elixir and enjoy what we feel are the benefits that we're enjoying. But we also want to see more underrepresented people like yourself in tech, and they're not always coming through the traditional path. 
and I really enjoyed your presentation. I wanted to get a better idea of how you did this so that others can be inspired and maybe those of us who took more traditional path, we have friends, we have family that we would love to share this with. Maybe it can be an inspiration for them as well. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to share. But before we jump into all the cool stuff there, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you. Like, where do you live and where are you working? So I live in Cottonwood Heights, Utah. So there's mountains around me. And I work at Travel Pass Group. So we sell hotels. Like like the actual buildings? Hotels? <laughs> or like 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 rooms at hotels? So rooms at hotels. Our <laughs> providers <Okay, cool. laughs> are Expedia and Priceline and lots of hotels and other providers as well. And then we sell their rooms. I don't know. I'm starting to think that selling actual hotel buildings could be fun. <laughs> I've never thought about that. <laughs> but that's pretty cool. You always you always wonder how how those sites kind of work. Yeah, this sounds like this is a software solution for making sure that these rooms are populated across as many different sites as, as possible to make sure that those rooms are sold. Did I did I nail it? <laughs> yes. And we want to get them to our buyers as quickly and as accurately as possible. So. so Kim, how long have you been using Elixir now? I started really studying it in 2020. During lockdown. Yep. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I wanted to talk about this path that you took to programming because I think it's become more common for people to take this non-traditional route. Well, the traditional route, let's just say what that is. I think that's usually going through like a computer science degree from a four-year school or a university. And I took a slightly non-traditional route by changing from a CS major to a management information systems degree because I didn't want to take three semesters of calculus, which I knew I didn't need for what I wanted to do. That was the requirement at the school that I was at at the time. And then I minored in CS. But that's not even really what we're talking about. Like, I guess the other way people are coming in more often is programming boot camps. And they're typically using learning JavaScript or Ruby or something like that, or Python maybe, but it's usually JavaScript. That's pretty much what it is all today. But that's not what you did either. <laughs> First of all, did you get a degree in college and what was it? Yes, I got a degree in family life. I also studied a little bit of math as well. <laughs> I'm guessing there weren't any programming classes as part of that degree. No. While I was studying, because I for a second I was a math major, so while I was studying math, I started taking a CS class and then I didn't end up taking it that semester. And anyways, that's as much as I got in college. So, so what, what kind of courses are in, are in family life? I'm just, I'm just curious. Human development and family processes. Yeah. All about the family unit and developing and social development, teenage development. When you say family processes, I'm imagining like the chore list that's glued, that's that's <laughs> ticky tacked to the to the uh, refrigerator. <laughs> um, but that's probably not what you mean. What is what does family process mean to you? Yeah, I, I would probably call the chore list like a, a routine, <laughs> but you can step it up and make it something fun. And if family loves it, then it's a ritual. But my advanced family processes class, we focused a lot on we read a book called something, something, healing our relationships and coming to ourselves. And that whole book was about focusing on like forgiveness in the family and strengthening your relationships and, and making sure that you're focusing on yourself rather than what other people are doing and how you can help 
create the best relationship on your end. So that was a really good class. All right. Well, since we're talking about like pathways to programming, I, I don't think I, sh I share your path yet, but since you're talking about college here, I just want to, I want to pause right here because I have a, I have a similar like college degree. It's not in family life, but it is a, I'm going to call it soft skills, but I don't actually know if I like that word soft skills. That's whatever, but it, that's commonly known as soft skills. And that is incredibly important in the context of so many other seemingly unrelated, you know, industries. And that I think is often a key to success. Even I had convinced myself, and maybe you did the same back in, in college, I, I took a CS uh, course and uh, I, I knew, I knew I was going to like it, but the, the material wasn't vibing with me. The, the teacher wasn't vibing. I, I, I swear I, I was, I was writing code in Emacs and printing on dot matrix printers, the code loops, right. As, as homework, like it was, it was a process that was not to be desired. I, I quit pretty quickly on that, decided to go invest in other social skills that are a little bit harder to just, I don't know, some, some folks, they just grow up into like good social situations. They pick that up. It's natural to them. Maybe it wasn't so much for me. And that was going to be harder for me to learn on my own. I needed some help to, to learn that stuff. Harder skills, I guess that's a, the, the term I'm going to use. Harder skills like programming, languages, loops, you know, it's software design, that kind of stuff can be picked up a lot easier than, than you know, per interpersonal skills. And so I, I really love that I took that path and it sounds like you did too. So what, what did you do after that, that CS degree? How, how did you get into programming? After studying family life, I knew I'd eventually get into Elixir because I wanted to do it while I was in college, but I didn't want to take the traditional route. I didn't want to take all the CS classes. So... My dad recommended Elixir to me. He was a Ruby hobbyist and an Elixir hobbyist and has written his own medical record, but not an Elixir or Ruby, but he wants to get it written into Elixir. He's an internal medical doctor, so he wrote his own medical record. So he told me that Phoenix Live would be a good route and to learn Elixir. So I started studying those like right after I graduated. And then I also had a brother who is a software engineer and he took the non-traditional route as well he studied philosophy in college nice all right i gotta meet your dad hashtag cool dad right there recommending phoenix live you to pick up that is amazing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i gotta give a shout out to her dad because he was an active member of our meetup in utah our utah elixir meetup and and i always thought it was super impressive because you know he's a practicing medical doctor and just doing programming on the side because he thinks it's cool and just finds it interesting. And he was coming to our Elixir meetup. And then so apparently he was good at evangelizing this so much so that his kids are now interested in this, even though it's not even the career he has. <laughs> it's definitely his like main interest, I would say. <laughs> he probably should have been a programmer. Well, that's cool. So you you decided just because of the influence of the people around you that Elixir is the thing I want to start to learn. I'd love your feedback on this, but one of the things that's my observation has been is I don't think there's a lot of resources out there for how to learn to program using Elixir. All the books that are out that are used a lot in the Elixir space are typically teaching someone who already knows how to program how to do Elixir from maybe they come from JavaScript or, or Ruby or something else, but they already know how to program. 
So how did you go like from that whole, I need to learn how to program and Elixir's the language I've chosen? I think I started with a Udemy course called the Complete Elixir in Phoenix Bootcamp. And I just started learning a little bit of Elixir off of there. And I think there were some tutorials on like setting up your machine and such in there as well. Actually, I think Pragmatic Studio may have had some good source resources on how to set up your machine as well. So I probably started a bit between the two of those. And then I got more focused on Pragmatic Studio. And I went through their Elixir course and their Phoenix Live View course. And I would just go through it again and again. <laughs> like, like if I didn't get something, I'd just watch it again and try it again. Yeah, I went through those Pragmatic Studio I haven't gone through the live view one, but I went through the Elixir one and I thought it did a pretty good job. Not that we're here to review courses, but I really loved how it kind of like walks you through a bunch of stuff. And then all of a sudden towards the end, it's like, surprise, you just built the basics of the Phoenix framework. And you're like, whoa, that's so cool. Yeah, I felt like they did a really good job, too. I didn't feel like completely lost as a newbie, maybe like a little bit, <laughs> but not, not, I felt like, I felt like I was pretty walked through how to do things. I remember getting so mad when, when the, the exercise would, was, would be like in Ruby and Rails would be to implement like has many. And so you'd write like these, like, I don't know, a hundred lines of, of code. And then you'd get it and you'd get done and they would be like, congrats. Yeah. You implemented has many now delete all your code and replace it with this one line. I'd be like, <laughs> no, I worked hard on that. <laughs> it's like, you got to learn the hard way before you learn the easy way. If you, if you roll in with like all the Phoenix generators, you got to know what they're doing. You do it. Like whenever we have a junior come in, we're like, all right, we'll write this whole context and schema and all the tests. And like a week later, it's like, oh, and you could have just typed this command and it would have done it for you. They're like, ah, oh, but now, you know, <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely good teaching practice. I, I, I appreciate that afterwards, but yeah, my, my gut reaction would be like, man, <laughs> <laughs> you described this process of going through some of these resources and just like, when I didn't understand something, I would just watch it again. And I imagine that dealing with these setbacks, with these challenges was something that you had to do. And you're kind of doing that on your own is what it sounds like, that this is all self-directed. You're you're not doing this as a, as a, a group, a little cohort of people who are encouraging you. It's like, this was just you. Is that right? For the most part, I feel like if something wasn't working like setup wise, I would email Pragmatic Studio and be like, what is going on? <laughs> and they they were always helpful. I'm trying to remember at what point in time that was, so that may not have been right when I was learning. Was your dad a resource for you? I'm sure he was. <laughs> I'm sure I've asked him plenty of questions. One of the other things you talked about during your presentation was this idea of grit. You actually played part of a TED Talk where grit was kind of being defined and talked about. But I just wanted to, like, from psychology today, I just pulled up this little definition so we can just have a, a frame of reference for what we're talking about with grit. It says, grit is said to summon both passion and perseverance in service of a long-term goal. It's a marathon, not a sprint, as they say. In other words, gritty people put in sustained effort over time to achieve a high level of success in their chosen domain. So it sounded like just as you were talking about that you felt grit and this idea of really grabbing onto something and holding on was key to you succeeding at this. Is that how you felt? Yeah, I definitely felt like it took a lot of patience to learn and then just 
a little bit of faith that something was going to work out (laughs) and just continuing to do the little things like every day or every week or anyways, until it, until I finally felt confident that I might be able to get a job and start interviewing. So during this time you were also working, right? But you weren't working in, in the IT industry. What were you doing? So I worked a little bit with my dad as his assistant in nursing care facilities and assisted living facilities. And then I started teaching fifth grade to my cousin's daughter. Then I started working as a stretch practitioner, stretching people at the stretch zone. What's fun about that is like, aside from the homeschooling teaching, aside from that, like the other stuff is very physical, very interpersonal, very like, I'm helping you do something with your body. Yeah, it was fun interacting with people in nursing care facilities. I was interacting with a lot of people who their bodies were more broken down <laughs> and stretch stretching people. I was working with people who were like at the prime of their life, just wanting to make sure they were staying healthy. And But all of those have something in common, which is that your results don't come from a day of work. They come over a long period of time, that grit. As you say, yeah, like that's that's a long term investment to see to see results sometimes. Yeah, super true. So while you're going through this process of learning and doing this on your own, were you ever tempted to just like, ah, oh, this is too hard. I just want to give up. Probably. <laughs> I <laughs> I think I think, like I said, the patience thing, because I don't know if I ever thought like, oh, I'd completely give up as much as I kind of kept in mind different routes I could take in life. I was like, I could become a marriage and family therapist, or I could keep studying this. And I kind of kept doors open, I would say. And I actually like applied for a marriage and family therapy school at the same time as I was learning to code. And it was just kind of like, hey, which one am I going to settle on? (laughs) But I, I wouldn't say that I was ever planning on giving up. But just as more as like, hey, is this going to work out for me or is it not? (laughs) Am I actually going to get a job in this? Or like, are there people who are hiring? Do I need to have a plan B? Yeah. Like, do I need to have a plan B? (laughs) That kind of a thing. What I think is interesting is when a lot of people are coming through the traditional route, say you're going through a university or, or college, you have built in mentors you can go to the computer lab and get help. You can go to your professor and say, I'm really having a hard time getting this concept. But if you're going through like a boot camp, you have the instructors and you have your the people who are doing it with you that you can always turn to. So I imagine none of that was there for you because you're taking this self-directed route that you're pursuing yourself. So what kind of mentors or mentorship were you looking for or, or did you find any? Yes, so... That's also something that I'm like, thank you to the stretch zone because I was stretching someone who helps people get into the career they want to get into. That's his job. (laughs) So he told me that I needed to start looking for men. Like he's like friends, hire friends, and you need to make more friends in the community. And then he's like, don't just go ask for a job. He's like, he's like, you got to make like genuine friendships with people. And so I reached out on LinkedIn and found a mentor. His name's John Forsyth. And then I, around that same time, saw that Bruce Tate from grox.io, that he offers scholarships. So I reached out to him and was like, hey, could I do your Phoenix Live View course? 
And he let me do it. And he also let me know that they have weekly mentorships. So some really good people helped mentor me, like Sophie Benedetto and Audie Yingar and Jeffrey Mathias, who he wrote a book on testing. And I'm not going to name everyone, <laughs> but <laughs> to name a few. Yeah, so I wanted to get an idea of like, how did you use a mentor then? You know, they have their own jobs, they have their own stuff, and you're maybe feeling like, oh, I can't just sit down and work with them together to solve this all the time. So how did you approach that, like the relationship to the mentor? Like, what would you do? And then when would you decide, I need to get help on this and how do I reach out? So like I said, it's like a weekly meetup that they would do with me, at least grox.io. And at first, they kind of had their schedule of things they wanted to mentor us on. But then as time went on, they were like, we just want you you guys to come with questions for us. And so there was one little project I was working on. I owned a flower company, still do. I was like, maybe I'll try to write my own floral website. Like that might be a good project for me. So I remember coming to them and being like, how do I increment the number of, uh, I don't know, quantity of flowers that they want or something. And they taught me how to make a little counter. And so I'd say that if, if I brought questions, they'd, they'd answer my questions. That was really nice. And okay, something to note though, is that that's something they do. That weekly mentorship is for anyone who's like underrepresented in the community. So like women and people of color and <laughs> they just want to get more people who are not Bruce feels like there's a lot of white males in the field and he feels like it'd be good to have more people just of all different kinds in the field I agree that we want to encourage diversity yes yes <laughs> there's been a lot of research on that just like that there's benefits to having people on the team who see things differently they come from different cultural backgrounds they come from different ways of thinking and they just help help to bring a perspective that can help solve problems earlier in the development process so you don't end up building a product that is just you know completely offensive to a group or just does not land with the t people you're trying to connect with Lots of value there for, for having diverse teams. We want to do that. So I think it's great that they're doing that and making an actual effort to support that. Kim, I do want to talk about how you got your first job. Like this is your first programming job. And this was one of the things you talked about during your presentation. I know people who just in my life, when they realize what the potentials are for people in this industry being programmers, and you realize that there is a lot of potential for stability, for earnings, for being able to work remotely in some cases. You know, there's a lot of attractive things. And they're like, hey, I think I might like this. And they want to do it, but they have to get to that point where, you know, they can get that, get through the learning phase and then into that first job. So you went through this learning phase. A lot of it was self-directed using a lot of online resources, but you enrolled yourself in what I think was key was in online groups that had mentorship built in. Yeah, I feel like my mentors gave me a lot of support and a lot of confidence and kind of helped me know that, okay, I'm beginner, but I'm not always going to be beginner. And like, it's okay to be at, be at a certain level and still get a job. And that like there are going to be companies that are going to qualify you 
That's actually something that my brother taught me as well, is that, yeah, you're probably underqualified for the job. Don't worry about it. (laughs) So, yeah, I'd say mentorships were key. Other things that were key was interviewing a couple of times or I reached out to one company and they let me come just kind of watch them for a couple hours during the day once. And then they left me with their interview question and just kind of giving myself some time to be like, okay, this is what an interview question will look like. (laughs) And this might be something that I might have to kind of solve one day when I do an interview. Then when I went to interview again, the first time I interviewed with another company, I think I kind of learned some lessons on like how to approach interviewing, to approach it with more more confidence and to remember like the little things like checking your email and getting back to them right away. And then when I actually found a job that I was like, wow, I really, really want this job. <laughs> I, I'd kind of made any of the other mistakes or prepared myself a little bit so that when I did interview with them, I felt like I approached it with hire me, (laughs) I'm ready, and we can work together on getting me to be where I need to be at. And so that third company, which is Travel Pass Group, I found on LinkedIn, actually. And the president of the company reached out to me and he's like, you worked for my friend, (laughs) a leather company selling leather products. (laughs) Anyways, and he's like, and you are studying Elixir and we're switching our entire platform to be an Elixir as we write out our new website and we want to meet with you. And so they met with me and... So was that first position considered an intern or is that like a junior? What was that first position like? Yes, so they interviewed me and decided that I was at like an intern level. (laughs) So that was great. And I feel like I and my team lead really pushed for me to like get to a point where I could be a junior developer. And I also felt like as I became a junior developer, I would be investing more time and could progress more quickly. So I really wanted to be there. So I was hired as an intern in February and it was probably May when I was hired on full-time. I, I remember when applying for, for jobs, I remember that uh, tidbit that your, your brother had, had told you was like totally right. The bullet points that a job listing probably has is like the ideal candidate, typically, right? Maybe even an impossible candidate in some cases, right? Yeah. But when you're applying for those jobs, like that extra like ingredient of confidence is kind of is you kind of have to have it to 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 break the barrier to actually apply for it. Right. A rule of thumb is that if you don't have like two or three of those bullet points, and I, I know that's relative, but if you don't have a couple of those those bullet points, that's OK. Like these these are skills that can can be picked up, you know, on the job, outside the job, on the way to the job, whatever you know, that, that it's not necessarily required, maybe as the posting even insinuates that, that these are required attributes, right? Some of them can have some pretty stern requirement, you know, words kind of like that, but I don't think that's actually true in in reality. I think your, your brother's onto something, even if you don't have all those bullet points, apply anyway, because there's a lot of other things that, that you bring to the table that is not necessarily in the requirement list or in the job listing. Yeah, just having fresh eyes, having a a good spirit about you, energy, right? That's all just as important, if not more important, than the actual requirements sometimes lay out in the job listing. You gotta have that confidence just to just to be able to to break that barrier and 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 apply anyway. And you never know. 
I once got a job like that. I applied knowing that I wasn't going to get it. Turned out I got it. I was so surprised, but it was, <laughs> it was so, it was so liberating. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I don't know. Interviewing is kind of weird. It's like, I've been in a position of hiring lately and it's like, you hire people who you think are amazing and they're not, or you hire people who you like, you're on the fence about, and then they end up being like amazing. So it's, I don't know. It's kind of a weird thing. I don't know if anyone has the special formula. I think the hiring process can be improved to try and reflect the kind of work that we're doing. And I know that at Fly, I've been doing a lot of hiring right now. And that's one of the things that we do is like, we don't actually care to see your resume, right? We don't care to see this, like all these traditional things. It's like, we're going to take this whole different approach. And I think that that has been really helpful in being able to find if these are really good candidates. What I do want to mention, like David, you, you talked about this idea of job postings. And I will say like lots of times you'll have like the job posting will describe the person who just left. <laughs> they had 15 years of experience with this. And right. And like, it's just like, that's who this was, who's being replaced. It's like, well, that person doesn't exist in another, you know, as, as an exact duplicate. But one of the things I think I, I do want to come back to what you talked about, Kimberly, was that tidbit of wisdom from your brother that you're not qualified and it's okay. Right. I think we get hung up on that. Like, I can totally see why you might feel like, well, I don't know that I'm, I'm ready. Right. When, when am I going to be ready? It's like, well, you'll never be ready. Like by, by some list of like, oh, I have all of these skills all checkmarked. And it's like, no, we can't wait for that. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Cause when I actually got to the job, they were kind of even surprised at how new I was just because I had only studied Elixir. Like I hadn't studied Postgres or like working with databases was like this foreign thing to me. And I I remember like watching my team lead, like put in a SQL command and me being like, ah, like, what is he doing? <laughs> like, like he's querying the database. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those, those database people like to scream at their databases too. You got to watch out for that. <laughs> That's, I, I saw on Twitter, I forget who said it, but SQL stands for scre Screaming Query Language or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, so, it's so true. I don't know why, but I've just gotten to the habit of just like, you know, like, yeah, all this stuff is uppercase all the time until you're talking about the data itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's something I had to learn. There's a lot of stuff that's taught in a four-year degree, right? And so it's like, I remember spending like a solid two years and I didn't even do computer science on like the SQL language and the SQL server from Microsoft. And it's like a lot of time spent on that stuff. But when you come from a different approach or a different background, there will you'll still have to learn it one way or another, I guess. But you'll, you'll have fun screaming at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I took the ecto route is what I ended up doing is learning more ecto yeah and i think with ecto you're going to have a, a favor done on your behalf that ecto is designed to be closer to the language that it's wrapping around right sql in this case so like the the things that you learn in ecto are fairly transferable to like raw sql because you're going to be doing a lot of the same stuff and that's not always true in other languages you know, like I, I remember, and no, sorry, Rails, you're such a punching bag for me. But, but <laughs> with Active Record, that querying language is so easy, but it was a crutch, and I never actually learned the underlying like tech underneath it. 
Uh, I could literally go to like user dot where, you know, whatever. And, you know, that, and that was all I needed to know, but I didn't, I, that doesn't transfer so well into like raw SQL. So I was lost when it, when it actually came to the time to, to know SQL. I, and then it's necessary sometimes, but with Ecto, I don't feel like that that's the same, that's the same trade-off. Right? I, I think it, it does allow teachings, you know, from this, from the underlying database uh, and SQL being, uh, being present in Ecto. We've got that going for us. And I'm, and, and I'm sorry for any Rails people out there that feel offended by that, but that was my experience. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say one other thing that I think is helpful for people who are coming new to a programming and to Elixir, but more specifically to programming is something that I learned over time with experience is that, you know, you had come up against a problem. It's like, I don't know how to do this. And there's that question of, will I ever know how to do this? Like, I feel like there's so many times they're like, okay, like, I think I kind of got this down. And then I'm like, it's like lifting weights or something. And you're like, oh, good. Like, I can lift like 20 pounds. I don't know. <laughs> and then you're like, and then like your trainer throws like a 30 pound weight on you. <laughs> and you're like, well, great. Like, and so I, I get feeling that way where I'm just like, hey, like, am I ever going to be at a point where it's like, doesn't feel like I'm lifting a weight that's like heavier than I've been trained to carry. <laughs> like, is my training ever going to be done? And the answer is probably no, <laughs> but, but it's fine. <laughs> yeah, it, it's true. But like, like the, the point that I was trying to get at is that I would have that feeling of like, I don't know if I'll ever get this, but then over time I would figure it out, you know, learn more. And over time I knew like, and when I come up against a problem today, it's like, well, I don't know how to do this yet. But I know from history, just from looking back, it's like, yeah, I've hit so many of these barriers where I've had to figure out a way around. Either I've got help from somebody else or I found a resource or I just worked through it or I just worked around it. But I, I got I, I got it right is just knowing that I can do this. I know that I can do this. I just don't know how to do it yet. Yeah. And yeah, I think you're right. Like as time goes on and as you like, I guess, see see the results you keep seeing the results you're like okay yes again back to like you get building confidence that okay like confidence in the language confidence in your team that's training you confidence just in the whole everything <laughs> yeah and and with that confidence i think uh comfort you know will come with that as, as well you get more comfortable you know, where, where you are when, when you encounter problems or, or areas that you don't know, you, you get comfortable and it, and it doesn't freak you out as much. Right. And it's, and it's not permanent either. There are, there are certainly weeks, weeks where I'm just like given another problem. And I, I just like, I, I, I shut down, I, I freak out and I'm like, I don't know this, this is going to like, this is going to tear me up, like whatever, but it's, you know, like Mark said, it's okay. It'll, it'll take some time. You've got evidence behind you now. Hopefully you, you'll be a, you know in a team environment too, where people are seeking to make you great as well, right? Not just themselves. Just to comment on that, it's like you talked about having confidence in your team. I think that's also goes along with it's the implied thing is there's safety, right? That you feel safe going to a team member saying, I don't understand this. Can you help me get this? Yeah. I have such a good team, guys. They're the best. <laughs> Well, I wanted to see if we could identify any general principles that we could maybe distill from this discussion, something that might be helpful for someone else who's trying to maybe follow in the same kinds of footsteps or path. I'll just go first. I think one of the things that 
I picked up from you talking about this is the importance of a support group or a network. You can get that in a classroom scenario. You can get that in a boot camp. Like in your situation, you might have to actually create that on your own. You create that yourself. One of the ways I'm thinking of doing that is something that your dad did and that you did, which was going to meetups, you know, putting yourself out there and actually trying to engage with people. Definitely building a support group is important because like I said, they kind of help you almost just feel like I, I keep going back to the word confidence, but I feel like they help you build confidence. Like it's really easy on your own to feel just like you're drowning a little bit. <laughs> and it's really nice to have like before working, my su- main support group was probably like Grox.io and John Forsyth and my dad and like my brother, or, like people who I kind of. Even like podcasts, I felt like were a support group because I would listen to stories of people and I gained strength from other people. And I think now that I'm working, I gain a lot of strength from my team. And it did take me a second during my first job to kind of like trust my leaders that they weren't just going to like fire me over me not knowing stuff. (laughs) And like, like even still, sometimes I'm like, oh, like... (laughs) But like it took me a little bit to trust that like that like I could go to my leaders and my and like ask them questions and that asking them questions was actually something that built trust on their end for me, knowing that I wasn't just going to like drown, but that I was going to go to them and ask for help when I needed it. And that I wasn't just going to like not that I never waste time, but like that I wasn't just going to like spin in circles and not get anything done, but like go to people when I needed to get past a block until I could then do it, do something again on my own. Yeah. I think that's an important skill that newbie people, you know, it could be new to a project. It could be new to the field is just realizing that you don't want to stay stuck. So you have to actively reach out sometimes. And I think that's an important skill to realize that it doesn't show that I'm incompetent. It shows that I'm smart enough to know when I need to reach out for help. Yeah. And then also learning when I don't need to reach out for help (laughs) has also been something I like feel like I am needing to learn (laughs) to. Right. right. Yeah. It's like you uh, you go to ask someone a question, you can't reach them immediately. And then you figure it out on your own like two minutes later. It's like, okay, well, maybe I could have like spent like two more minutes. (laughs) Yeah. But it's funny because sometimes like in that like Slack conversation of like messaging someone like, hey, I don't. And then I'm like in the middle of typing it and I'm like, have this aha moment in It's weird because I'm like, what is it about like going and asking someone else that like suddenly I figured it out on my own? I don't know, but. (laughs) Do you you remember at ElixirConf all those rubber ducks with test double? Yeah, I actually think I do remember that being there, but I don't, I'm like trying to remember the, like the context of it is what I think I don't remember. (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, here, here's the context is that, that, uh, that's, that's, that's sometimes called a, a process of rubber ducking. And I'm sure this is in some book somewhere. I, I haven't read it, but I think it's in the Pragmatic Programmer. Okay, it, I I had a feeling, but I didn't want to say it that that it was that one. That so the process is that you just you literally you put some inanimate object that you can talk to and on your desk, and then in this case it's a rubber duck, and you just talk this process out with that rubber duck, and sometimes that's all you need is that little bit of like communication with anything <laughs> to sort out and work through the problem. And, uh, and sometimes, and it's happened to everybody, I think all, all the engineers, 
that rubber ducking process can happen in a Slack thread. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's very normal. Like that is a very normal process. Like that is that's that's totally legit. I don't want to ruin the the mood, but there is some reality that we should continue to check in with ourselves, right? And this is for everybody in all stages of of their career, right? Not just juniors, but it's especially especially prevalent for for juniors and and those don't, that are early in their in their careers and that's trust that that's trust with especially with your your boss right you mentioned you you're working with a great team that is a perfect place to be because if you're working with a great team and a great boss you have that sense of trust you don't have to worry about getting let go on a friday right like you don't have to worry about that because you, you have a good sense of trust do they trust you that you're learning, that you're getting there, that you're you're seeking out resources, that you're improving over time, right? But as soon as you lose that trust somehow, and that can happen in a variety of different ways, right? As soon as you lose that trust, I'm sure everyone has their own experience of what that feels like. Trust is really hard to get back. And sometimes that's that's an indicator, right? Like this isn't a space for me that I can like healthily grow anymore because I just don't have that sense of of trust anymore. And the person that's that's going to matter, you know, most in an employment situation is going to be like your boss, right? And so, like that's that's an important thing to remember, right? Just for your own your own mental health is that if you know if you that that trust between you and your boss is like something to something to work at, something to continue improving upon, right? Try hard not to lose that trust over time because once it is lost, it's difficult to get back. And it's in those moments, you know, where. Where, well, you know what, like maybe the opportunity is my next opportunity is somewhere outside of the company or trying to transition to a different, uh, a different team or something like that. So like, I'd keep, I'd keep that in mind too, right? That like, you're doing great. This is not really relevant to you right now, but it's going to happen to all of us at some point. And so knowing when your time has come, you know, and it's time to, to, to move on to another company, sometimes that has to do with, with trust. And it's not necessarily because you lost it. It could be trust because you don't trust that the opportunities are coming to you anymore. You've not really found a lot of opportunities to grow where you are. It's time to move on, right? It's not necessarily trust because somebody, you know, did something mean. It's because like you you don't trust the process that you're in anymore. The process is not giving you those opportunities and it's time to continue, you know, growing maybe outside of the company, something along those lines. That's something I'll also mention is like it's it could be like worth reaching out to like some of our people, but we have like a growth chart because I think our leaders kind of feel like you shouldn't have to leave a company in order to grow. Like the company should be able to continue providing you opportunities to grow. And so that's something I appreciate is I, I know where I'm at and I see how, like what the next level is for me to grow into. And they also really encourage me to like ask for those opportunities as well to like, if there's a project that I'm interested in ask for the opportunities as well on my end to continue growing. Definitely good. Yep. There are a couple other things I just want to kind of talking out thinking this might be helpful for somebody. If someone was wanting to follow in the path where they're plotting their own course to becoming a programmer, it's important to be self-aware. Just what kind of learner are you? Like I had a friend who felt like I can't learn from books. I learn best from instruction. So that might direct what path you might want to go. I know some people are more intrinsically motivated, which is like internal motivation. And really, Kim, that sounds like you. Like I have this drive inside me that is pushing me and I'm going to keep going whether or not 
someone else is beside me saying, you know, you, you have to do this or not. And some people are more extrinsically motivated, right? By rewards or by that we're doing this as a group, right? And so a boot camp or a class might be better for someone who's in that position. So I think some self-awareness is advised just to be aware of how am I best able to learn? What can I do? But Kim, I think it's awesome that you have done this. Basically, you've you've succeeded in your goal of learning how to program and then getting your first job professionally programming full time. Yeah, it is kind of an exciting thing. And like looking back and seeing, I think sometimes in the moment we can be really hard on ourselves on where we're at right now. But then I look back and I'm like, it's actually a really big thing. So it's exciting. So what's up next for you? Are you continuing to do some of the self-education and learning, or is it more on the job learning with your coworkers? What are you using now to to continue? I still attend the weekly Groxio meetups. And sometimes like if there's something that I just feel like I read someone's code and I'm like, how did their code work here? Like maybe I'll bring it to them. And I also still like I'm reading through the book Elixir in Action right now with John Forsyth and his friend Nathaniel Rollins. And like we do a little weekly meetup where we just like read a little bit. Then on my own, I'm trying to work through GraphQL, like a GraphQL book. But as I've gotten like better, I feel like I learn a lot just by reading other people's like PRs and their code on GitHub or when it comes through on my end. I, I, I feel like there's a lot to learn just inside our own code base. That's awesome. I think it's true. Like if you think I want to be a better writer, like for stories, like the, one of the best things you do is you go read other people's stories who are really good at writing. So yeah, PR reviews, looking at code that other people are doing like, wow, how did they do that? Oh, I didn't know you could do that. Super helpful. Well, Kim, this has really been fun. I am impressed with your drive to do this on your own, really, and just decide this is something I want to do and I'm going to figure out how to make this happen. And I, I, I hope it's something that more people can do that this can be an example and encouragement for other people as well. I hope so as well. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Well, if people want to follow you online or maybe have a question on a resource or something that you were mentioning that we didn't get a good link to, how can they get in touch with you? I'm Kimberly Brooke Johnson on LinkedIn. I guess my Twitter is Siesta Kimberly, just like Siesta is in like a nap in Spanish. And no, it's not because I like taking naps. It's just because I lived on Siesta Drive growing up. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I feel like those are two good places on either my LinkedIn or on Twitter. Well, thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. And really, your dear listener, if you are on this path and you're wanting to learn how to program, there are a lot of great resources out there. Sometimes I think some of the best resources for learning how to program are probably not in Elixir, but you can learn some of the concepts, and then go and try it in Elixir. Go out there, find meetups, find people, connect with people, find mentors. You might have to build your own group. But Kimberly did it. You can too. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.